This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human on High FM. My guest today is Major Peter Bailey in Israel, and our topic is Men of Valor. Peter was on my program a few years ago, and we discussed his book, Street Names in Israel. If you haven't yet read it, please do yourselves a favor and get it. It is fascinating. I met Peter and his wife, Jeannie, in Israel a few years ago, and we have become friends. He is a very proud ex-South African, and he did a lot of philanthropic work in South Africa, and he continues to do so in Israel, which is now his home since 2013. He was a successful businessman in South Africa. He's a historian and author, and he has particular interest in Jewish history and military history. His latest book is called Men of Valor, and he was interviewed on Chai uh, FM programs before, but I wanted to discuss in particular the nature of courage and what what actually fascinates Peter about this. The book I see, Peter, you said the book is dedicated to the thousands of heroes who gave their lives to bring about the state of Israel and to all those who have fallen since then in defense of Israel. Welcome, Peter. It's so nice to have you on my program. How are you? Thank you. I'm well, thank you, Sue. Lovely to be speaking to you. A lovely warm day in Israel, great sunshine, and happy to be speaking to you. I'm so pleased. And you know, Peter, I can't help thinking that we're going to be discussing courage and and how courage is a virtue and and does, you know, there are many facets to courage. But I think particularly now with coronavirus going around the world and fear being almost fed into everyone's souls at the moment, I think it's a very good topic that you and I are talking about. Because um, Mark Twain actually said, courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Would you agree with that? Um, sorry, can you just say that again slowly? Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. So when you write... Uh, mm, the courage is definitely not the absence of fear because um, what comes through when you're writing my book, just about every every one of the heroes were in great fear. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, I think very much fear is one of the, the driving forces. Um, fear for themselves and fear for their fellow men that drives people to, to do these uh, these wonderful heroic deeds. And in your book, The Men of Valor, you, you write about the 40 soldiers who received Israel's highest award for bravery. Will you just tell um, us uh, about this valor, this Medal of Valor? Um, well, the Medal of Valor, the Medal of Valor, in fact, is the highest award, the premier award for bravery in Israel. Mm-hmm. It started out life in, in 1948 uh, as the um, Hero of Israel Award. And it's very reminiscent and was based on the hero of the Soviet Union. Oh. Uh, the initial leaders of Israel were very much admirers of the Soviet Union. And uh, Stalin at that time, the leader of the Soviet Union, was very friendly towards Israel um, and allowed the transfer of arms from Czechoslovakia and other countries uh, to become available to Israel, which actually made, in many respects, the victory in 1948 possible. Mm. Besides the wonderful caliber of people, mm-hmm. so this award was introduced um, to to uh, 
to reward those that have carried out particular acts of gallantry uh, to save their fellow men. Now, why only 40 soldiers? I mean, that seems such a little when you think of all the wars that Israel has been in. So we're talking about soldiers. Yes. When, you know, why only 40 soldiers were, were, received this when we, when you think of all the many wars that Israel has had? Well, well initially, the, the first 12 were awarded for the, the War of Independence in 1948. Um, there were no parameters that had been set at that stage, and Ben-Gurion uh, appointed a committee, and the committee couldn't come to any decisions, and they eventually decided to select 12 people from the various arms and the various branches of the new Israeli Defense Force and, and reward 12 outstanding people, and that was how it started. Mm. Um, so, um, and, and, and then that progressed then into the into the wars of retribution the, the, when they were attacked by, by, by terrorists and, and soldiers that go out and defend the kibbutz and defend the Moshavim and defend the people. Um, and that then went into the 1956 campaign in the Sinai, and it, it was more structured, and particular acts of military gallantry were then awarded, mm. uh, were awarded with the, the Medal of Valor. So, you know, you, you talk about the Jewish perspective of of um, of. Um Courage and and bravery in in uh, military. Tell me about the Jewish perse- perspective of saving a life. Well, well it's very interesting from a Jewish perspective. There's the the, the, uh, the, the Talmudic belief of pikuach nefesh, uh, which is the sanctity of human life. Um, and the saving of human life by a soldier is rewarded in most armies with a very very uh, significant medal. Mm. In Israel, we are Jews are, are commanded to take any action necessary to save the life of another person. They even commanded to break any of the commandments, including the Shabbat or Shabbos commandments, in mm. order to save a life. And this also applies to soldiers in battle. So, from a Jewish perspective, saving a life should not be rewarded with a medal for bravery, because you are merely carrying out the commandments. Um, However, the founding fathers of Israel were not particularly religious, mm-hmm. um, and they tried to instill the same military discipline that they had learned from the British, because a lot of them had served in the British forces uh, during the First World War, during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tried to instill the same sort of uh, gallantry or, or belief in the sanctity of gallantry um, by introducing these medals. But really, from a Jewish perspective, Heroes were people who saved the land of Israel. Right, okay. um, Not people who saved individual lives. Hmm. But um, the Hero of Israel ribbon became the premier award for, for heroism, and it was based on the generally accepted military principle of an award for risking one's life to save a life that of a comrade. So the Jewish uh, Pekuach Nefesh, is that to save any person's life or just a fellow Jew? To save a life. A life um, in, it's, it's in general. It's the saving of human life. Not wow. just a fellow Jew. The saving of human life. So it is the sanctity of the human life then. The sanctity of human life comes before anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And um, just tell me what made you in particular go choose the stories behind these men? Sorry, say that again? What made you go into detail of the stories behind these men and, you know, how there were so many of them were, were ordinary people doing extraordinary deeds? 
silly Sue. I can, I can hardly hear uh, you now. It's, it's okay. It's gobbled. All right, sorry. These, the 40 um, soldiers that received it, you go into the wonderful yes. detail on who they were, and many of them were ordinary men who were put in situations to become great in the deeds that they did. Absolutely. I, I don't believe anybody sits out and says, well, today I'm going to go out and be a hero. Mm. Uh, we're fighting a war, and today I'm going to go out and be a hero. They find themselves in situations where they're called upon to do to do things to save their, 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 their comrades, um, to ensure that, that the battle is successfully won. Um, and they do what has to be done. I think it's, it's a combination of um, idealism, and I think the, particularly going back uh, between 1948 and 1973, there was a very high degree of idealism uh, in Israel's soldiers. Each mm-hmm. one believed that it was his duty to make sure that the state of Israel survived. The state of Israel was threatened continually on all sides, and each and every soldier, they were brought up with it from, from their childhood to know that it was their responsibility to save the state of Israel. Mm. And I think this idealism, coupled with excellent training and a knowledge to, of, of having to do what had to be done, turned these people into heroes. And I should imagine also the the camaraderie that actually occurs. We're going to be listening to a YouTube a bit later that actually mentions that in the Israeli army, the camaraderie that does develop within the the different units. Most definitely, there's absolutely unbelievable camaraderie and esprit de corps because soldiers remain with one unit. Uh, they train with the same men all the time. Um, they, 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 they train with the, these people become their friends and become their family. Mm-hmm. Now, when they go into battle, it's like one big family going into battle together. They're not strangers. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, Peter, going back to your previous book, um, Street Names of, of um, Israel, I was particularly fascinated by most, most stories of the different names. But um, Wallenberg stood out for me as a righteous among the nations. Can you tell us a bit about Wallenberg and his courage, not in battle, but his courage as a person? Wallenberg was a different kind of courage because he realized that Jewish lives had to be saved. The the journey that he had traveled in life had taken him... from studying to be born in Sweden and then studying to be an architect in the United States, he couldn't get work, uh, and he ended up in Cape Town, uh, of all places, mm. working for uh, a commercial concern arranged by his grandfather, who was a, 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 a diplomat. Yeah. Um, so he started working in Cape Town, but after six months, the grandfather decided to ha- let him get experience in other fields, and he was transferred to Haifa where he ran the branch of the Netherlands Bank in Haifa. Mm -hmm. Um, And while he was there, this was the period when German Jewish refugees running from Hitler's regime started arriving in the 1930s, in the Mm mid-1930s. And he actually witnessed the arrival of these people, the condition in which they arrived. He heard their stories, and he was very moved and very touched by these stories. When he completed his tour of duty in, in Haifa and he went back to Sweden, he worked for a company which uh, made it necessary for him to go to Germany 
And it's not clear whether he deliberately got this type of employment so he could actually see what was going on in Germany or not. But he went to Germany and was able to witness at first hand the terrible, terrible treatment being meted out to the Jews in Germany. We're going to get and back I, I to that, it Peter. Was at that stage. Peter, just hang on. Pardon? We'll get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. I'm talking to Major Peter Bailey from Israel, and we're talking about his, the Men of Valor, which is a book that he's just written, The 40 Soldiers Who Received Israel's Highest Award for Bravery. We're actually talking about courage and the multifaceted view of courage. And at the moment, we're talking about Wallenberg, who was mentioned in Peter's first book, Street Names of Israel. And Peter's telling me how you, Wallenberg was actually in South Africa, and from here, there he went to Haifa, and from there to Germany, where he witnessed firsthand the atrocities being uh, perpetrated against the Jews. Can you pick up for me from there, please, Peter? Was yes, in yeah. Germany. My, my, my belief is that it was at this stage when he saw the deprivations and the hardships being experienced by the Jews in Germany that he started thinking of ways to save Jewish lives and get them out of Europe. And okay. he put this into practice after the Nazi occupation of much of Europe. He had himself at his own initiative appointed to a diplomatic post in Budapest in July 1944 uh, as the first secretary of the Swedish embassy. He had a special arrangement with the king and the prime minister of Sweden, and he was granted extensive powers, uh, and he was given a big budget to save Jewish lives, which is exactly what he did. Um, of all the writers among the nations, I, I speak subject to correction, but I think Raoul Wallenberg saved more Jewish lives than anybody else, mm. um, motivated by his experience as a witness to, to what was going on. Mm. Um, it was his social conscience. It, it offended his social conscience. Conscience and a drive to take the calculated risks to save these thousands of Jewish lives uh, while he was under, well, probably questionable protection of his diplomatic status. Mm. So, I mean, you say social courage, and uh, this is the type of courage which involves uh, the risk of exclusion and unpopularity, but also leadership. He certainly took a leadership role there, didn't he? Very, very much so. He took a leadership role. Um, in, in, in getting this done and not, not leading anybody but he's led by his own conscience in fact. So that um, would be moral courage, wouldn't it? I mean, if you look at moral courage, which is doing the right thing, especially well, when there I, are I risks it's, it's, involved. It's a combination of intellectual courage, moral courage, social courage. Mm. It's a combination of various things. Uh, very unlike the military hero who does something on the spirit of the moment and gets rewarded. Wallenberg mm. planned this planned the whole exercise, the whole endeavor. It was planned to a T, and he carried it out. And, and that, I believe, takes greater courage well, than to do something at the spur of the moment. What an unbelievable lesson for us in the world, isn't it? Is, now he Absolutely, was, most definitely. Was he, was he uh, recognized as uh, righteous among the nations? Most definitely. Mm-hmm. And Most definitely, and there's streets in Israel named after him. Um, he, he really is a, a wonderful example of, of what can be done when, when somebody has the moral courage to do what has to be done. Um, uh, you know, looking on, on, on the website, the Raoul Wallenberg Institute yes. describes him very simply 
as a man of outstanding individual courage, humanity, and decisiveness. Mm. Wow. And that is exactly what he... And the Swedish Secretary of State some years ago, speaking about Wallenberg, said this. He did not ask what needed to be done. He did not need a decision-making process in the face of evil. His unerring moral compass indicated the path that he should take. Mm. Raoul Wallenberg thus set an example. He knew that we must always be prepared to do what is right. He showed that we are all able to meet any challenge. Mm. And I think that, that epitomizes Raoul Wallenberg. No, it really definitely does. You know, they talk about the six types of courage, which is the physical courage, the social courage, intellectual courage, moral courage, emotional courage, and spiritual courage. And if you ask me, he probably grappled with the whole lot of them. That is that is where yeah, yeah. Well, he really does. And, you know, uh, Winston Churchill, what did he say about courage? Just let me think. I remember reading it. Um, he said, uh, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And for him, he yeah, must yeah. have faced huge adversity. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. You know, it's uh, that I believe to actually plan to put to put yourself into danger to save others is, is the ultimate courage. Mm. Absolutely, and there's still a debate over whatever happened to him, isn't there? There, there is an absolute debate. What what motivation the Russians had to get rid of him, to arrest mm. him, and then apparently to get rid of him. Mm. Mm. Gosh. Uh, we don't know what other activities we might have been encouraged in uh, that might have upset the Russians. Maybe one day we'll find out, but until then he remains an absolute hero to the Jews everywhere. Eventually the Soviet archives will be open. <laughs> Please, God. <laughs> you know, it's taken, it's taken I don't know, 80 years for the, for the Vatican archives to be open. Yes. Uh, maybe one day the Soviet archives will be open. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that the Vatican archives will, will show some heroism and courage in them as well, not just uh, negativity. Let's, let's wait and yeah, see what comes know. out. I'm sure they will. I think the, the, the current Pope seems to be a man of great, great moral courage as well. I have um, to agree with you, and he certainly is standing up to uh, social courage as well, you know, at the risk of embarrassment and exclusion, and certainly unpopularity yes. at the moment. So there you are. It's another example of courage. Peter, tell uh, me... When when you were writing, when you were doing research for the book, um, were, were there any in particular who stood out for you? I know you mentioned to me in a letter Avigdor uh, Kahalani. Will you just tell me a bit about him? Did he particularly stand yeah, out to you as a courageous it's, person? It's actually, an interesting story how I came to write the book. Mm-hmm. A gentleman by the name of Craig Frank who lives in Hollywood, Florida, Right. Uh, purchased a copy of the street names in Israel. And he sent me an email saying how he had enjoyed the book. He'd lived in Israel for a number of years and he'd served in the army there. Um, and he enjoyed the book so much that it really lends itself, the style lends itself to writing about Israel's 40 heroes. Which, I must be honest, I didn't know about the 40 at that stage. Yes. And he also said to me one of his particular friends was General Avigdor Kahalani. And if I wanted to contact Avigdor Kahalani, he would put me in contact with him and, and so on. 
So the first thing I did was to research the Medal of Valor. And I then, Avigdor Kahalani was the 40th and last recipient. And I looked at Avigdor Kahalani's biography. And this was a man who, during the 1967 Six-Day War, uh, was burnt on 70% of his body. He spent a year in hospital mm. having skin grafts and basically having his life saved and becoming a human being again. Mm. And after he finished that year, he returned to military service. Mm. And I thought, what kind of man is this that he won the second highest medal for his action in 1967? Mm. So what, what kind of man is this that then goes back into battle and then wins the premier award? Mm. And, and he must have been... Other or anything like that, these must be amazing people. And he must, um, he must have been disfigured at the time. And, you know, to go back into battalion and into war, I mean, really, it's... Tremendous courage. Uh, 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 most definitely. And, and, uh, so that fascinated uh, you. His, uh, very, very, very fascinating. And, and according to his brigade commander, he, uh, uh, also Victor Ben-Gal, Colonel Victor Ben-Gal was brigade commander. Mm-hmm. At the end of the battle, of the three days of battle, he said to Kahalani, you have saved the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one goes back to the fateful words that uh, Moshe Dayan uttered on the second day of the Six-Day War, he said that the third temple is about to fall, mm. referring to Israel as the third temple. Mm. Um, and Kahalani stopped it falling. And, and there's another chap also who won the medals, Vika Greengold. Yes. Were the, were... Similarly, they mm. didn't, neither of those two actually performed one particular act of bravery in 1973, but they led with absolute courage, with dedication, and for three days, they fought an enemy, outnumbered 800 tanks against 80, mm. and eventually succeeded and turned the, the Syrians back. Good. Uh, and that saved the land of Israel in 1973. Mm. And in reading your book and reading the story about them, I was totally amazed at actually, I hadn't really known much about the, the discrepancy in tanks and everything. And I, I actually could not, I couldn't put the book down. I was so fascinated by, the, you know, the fact that they were able to turn the tides of war by their t- total courage and persistence in moving forward. Absolutely, totally. And, uh, you know, I was very grateful to two of the Dukalani who got you know, his time and I, I spent time with him in his apartment uh, chatting. Uh, about his actions mm. and I really began to understand a lot of what motivates people like this and it's purely purely a total idealism mm. his parents had been refugees who had come to, to Israel um, and, and this is what he grew up with and he was totally motivated by that and if you look at the histories of just about all of the, for the 40, particularly the early ones, mm. a lot of, one of them was born in a displaced person's camp in 1946 mm. Uh, several of them had to flee from Eastern Europe uh, in their teens. Um, they defied death, they fought death. It, it's absolutely unbelievable. And then came to Israel where they were immediately thrust into war upon war and ended up as heroes. It mm. was not surprising to me, actually. Well, look at that background. We're just going to advert. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Major Peter Bailey, 
And we're talking about um, our topic is men of valor. And we're actually talking about courage. And I'm asking Peter some of the stories in his book, uh, Men of Valor, which is the most fascinating book to read, quite honestly. It really does give you an idea of, of what courage really is and the different aspects of courage. When you met Avigdor Kahalani, how old is he? Uh, he's now 75 or 76. Mm. And have his family the, subsequently gone into uh, the, the IDF? Has his, his family, have any of his family followed him into the IDF? Are they in Israel? Um, yes, yes, his family are in Israel, absolutely. He lives in an apartment in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually lectures, he lectures at the Interdisciplinary College in Herzliya. Um, and his family are all here, yes, without any doubt. So they've probably all gone into the IDF as well then? Yes, everybody, everybody goes to the IDF. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody goes to the IDF. There's no, uh, from, the, from the highest to the lowest, it is irrelevant who or what you are. Oh, um, and he's also, uh, Victor Carlin in particular, he's also a unique uh, person. Um, because the highest civilian award in Israel is the President's Medal. Yes. And Avigdor Kalani was also, has also been awarded the President's Medal. Ah. So he's been awarded the highest medal for military bravery, mm-hmm. and he's also been awarded the, the President's Medal for civilian service. Mm-hmm. Um, he stands alongside people such as Henry Kissinger, Bill Clinton, uh, Eli Russell, mm-hmm. uh, Angela Merkel, um, and, and Israel Mayalau, who is the Ashkenazi chief of Israel, is a recipient of the President's Medal. Good heavens. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story that he, uh, after his retirement, he became a member of the Knesset. Uh, he became a cabinet minister. Uh, he was the deputy mayor of Tel Aviv. So he's rendered service all over, and he actually organized an escape from the Yemen uh, of about a thousand people when times were really getting tough for them in the 1980s, 1980s, 1990s. Uh, and he was behind the whole initiative and got them out of there. Mm-hmm. And for all his civilian activities, uh, he was awarded the, the Medal of Valor, uh, the, uh, the President's Medal. Mm-hmm. Um, now, about 50% of the places of the book, as you might have read, are going to uh, Yachad, which is uh, an organization known together for Israel's soldiers. Yes, why um, did you choose that? Bit, pardon? Why did you choose that particular uh, fund for your book, the proceeds to go towards? Well, um, that is the only fund, the, the only organization that is allowed to officially collect funds for the well-being and welfare of Israel's soldiers. It's a, it falls directly under the Ministry of Defense, mm-hmm. and it's run by the uh, Ministry of Defense people. And Avigdor Kahalani was the chairman of Yachad. Um, at one stage, um, and uh, it was just a no-brainer to choose it. They run an organization. Part of the organization is something called the Association for the Well-Being of Israel's Soldiers, AWIS, which is the English-speaking branch of Yachad in Israel. It also has a Friends of AWIS in the, in the U.S. and a Friends of AWIS in Britain. And uh, I, I just decided that... Uh, 50% of the proceeds for the book must go to these uh, for soldiers' welfare. Hmm. Fantastic. And I see um, when I actually read up about it that you say that they also they 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 um, 
do uh, um, what uh, like special rooms for them, entertainment areas, and um, I mean it sounds quite amazing what they actually do. The recreational rooms for for soldiers at the homes yes, and clubs. They, they do, yeah, when, yeah. when they come off duty, they have they call it a, a clubhouse, mm-hmm. um, which comes from the. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's a little bit more than a clubhouse. It's like a little a little lounge where they can have some home comforts. They've got a television set and maybe a coffee machine. And some of them have got a little, uh, maybe a little pool table with a soccer machine. Uh, and they can just sit there and relax when they're off duty. Mm-hmm. And speaking to the soldiers, uh, and I've been to a number of military bases uh, for the opening of these clubhouses for the dedication. Mm-hmm. Um, people... People donate money to, to, to build a clubhouse in memory of departed relatives or this sort of thing. Um, and the dedication ceremonies are amazing. Next time you're in Israel, I want to try and get you on one of them. Yeah, I'd love um, that. Mm. And meeting the soldiers and speaking to them and hearing what they have to say about these uh, these clubhouses. Recently, I was right on the very, very top of the Golan. I love the Golan of... of uh, Mount Hermon, mm-hmm. uh, which is called the Eyes and Ears of Israel, the very, very pinnacle where it looks over Syria and it looks over uh, over Lebanon. Yes. And we, we dedicated a clubhouse there. And about two or three months after that, I was on my son's kibbutz, and I met a young girl, a lone soldier in Israel. She's from the United States. And I was chatting, and we were early, and she told me, I said, oh, are you using our clubhouse? Yes. She said, oh, that clubhouse is so wonderful. Oh, how and wonderful. It was quite a pleasure <laughs> to know that she, she was enjoying it. it was <laughs> Absolutely. How wonderful to know that, that it was really being used and utilized as, as a recreational area. Wow. <laughs> yes, that's uh, <laughs> now, you know... And then the, the other thing... Yes. Sorry? Yes, no, go on. Uh, the other thing? Sorry? You, the other thing you were going to say? The, the other thing is um, also we were uh, together with Telfed, yeah, the, the South African Zionist Federation in Israel. We visited a, a moshav where there's uh, a South African couple and they were the initiators of a, a sort of kiosk at the transport hub in the Negev Desert. Yeah. where the soldiers get on the bus to go home or when they come back from leave and this sort of thing. And they set up a kiosk there um, making sandwiches and providing coffee. Hmm. They do something like 150 sandwiches a day. Good heavens. And provide coffee for the soldiers as they pass them through. And one of our uh, one of our ex-South Africans who now lives in the States was visiting and he purchased a heat wrapping machine for them to be able to wrap their sandwiches and keep them fresh. <laughs> and uh, two weeks ago, they came across some beautiful coffee dispensers and chocolate, hot chocolate dispensers, and they sent a message, could we find a sponsor? And the same chap was contacted by Joel Plotnick. Yes. And within minutes, there was a sponsor for these machines, and they now have the machines as well, which is also something that, that has come about as a result of... Uh, of my book as a result of the Men of Valor, as a result of AWIS, and it all just hangs together. Wow. And it's all about people. That is so rewarding. It's actually all about connection, isn't it? It's amazing. And, you know, um, Peter, I 
you know, I talk about connection, and if we actually put connection into courage as well, and we look at how, in many ways, courage can be taught, and as as role models, all each of us in our own way do have that responsibility to show our children what moral courage is, what social courage is, physical courage. You know, do you agree? And most definitely, it's just learn by example. Mm. And I think that when this is instilled in children from childhood, when they get into situations where spirit of the moment courage is required, they do what has to be done. Mm. Mm. Um, I think one, so. One of the chaps in my one of the chaps in my book that I must mention as well. Mm. Um, I'm just trying to. I think his name is Shloma Shloma Alman. Yeah. Um, now. He he actually uh, was awarded the medal posthumously. Um, he, his chaps were involved in a battle. The tank was knocked out. He managed to get his men out of the tank, uh, and he got the, 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 the rest of the, the, the tank team together, and he started leading them across the desert uh, to the Israeli lines. Uh, and they had to go something like 14 kilometers, if I remember correctly, through the desert. And he led his men all the way through the desert. And they were within sight of the Israeli, the first Israeli outpost mm. when uh, Israeli uh, uh, guards saw them arriving and thought it was an Egyptian commando group. Oh, my word. And opened fire and killed this poor chap, Shlomo Arman. Mm. It was a total accidental thing. Mm. Um, but this was a man who heroically saved his people. Mm. He carried one of his fellow soldiers for about seven or eight kilometers. Mm. And then to be knocked down at the final hurdle. By friendly um, fire. Mm, how uh, awful. Gosh. And, 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 and that is to me the most, the, 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 most, the story with the most pathos of all 14 of them. Mm. Oh, and did you meet any, did you speak to any of his family by any chance? No, I haven't been able to contact any of his family. I, mm. It's been very, very difficult. I've been in contact with the, with the widow of one of them uh, and then with Abigdor Kahalami. And that's, that's, that's about it. It's extremely difficult. I don't like to speak really much about it. Uh, I've also been in, in, uh, in uh, contact with uh, Yuval Maria, who's, who's a professor in, uh, in the U.S. now. He's a specialist in post-traumatic stress. Right. Uh, he won his medal. He won his medal and in 1967. Um, and... After the war, he realized that he was suffering from, from, from post-traumatic stress, which wasn't very much recognized in those days. Mm. Um, and he, he went and did a degree and he, in psychology, and he did psychiatry, and then he became an absolute specialist in post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And he's now acknowledged as the world's greatest expert uh, and is at uh, University of Columbia mm. um, as, as the head of the, uh, of the department. That's definitely turning so the, turning his wounds to wisdom and sharing that wisdom. Most definitely, he has the personal experience. I know mm. nobody nobody can know anything better than those that have the personal experience. Absolutely, and you know, when I think about courage, I mean, I know that in my own family, courage was definitely taught as an example. You know, uh, uh, and it was certainly to be admired. Uh, quite a few of uh, my family on both sides, my mom and my dad's sides, uh, were OBEs, Order of the British Empire. They were uh, recipients of that. 
And I must admit, uh, you know, when I heard the st- stories of my mom and dad's uh, roles in World War Two, and their courage in battle and in life, they were inspiring. So definitely courage can be taught, and it is the wisdom that needs to go for, for, forward to our children for them to know that it, and, we and, can and, take and, a stand. And don't forget your, your uncle, uh, General Neil Webster. <laughs> yes, um, you're quite right. <laughs> he was also a great military man. <laughs> uh, now, um, so runs in the family. <laughs> I hope so. Peter, tell me a bit about also the other person who's always really fascinated me, and you also mention her in your street names in Israel, was Hannah Senesh. Will you just tell me a Hannah bit about Hannah? Hannah Sinis is a, actually an amazing, amazing young lady. And she died at, at a very young age of 23. She was, she was uh, executed, uh, I call it assassinated, uh, in Hungary. Uh, as a young girl, she attended a, a Calvinist convent, uh, a convent school in Budapest, in Hungary, where she'd been born. Um, she was a very clever girl, a brilliant girl, and Jews because they were Jews, that were required to pay three times the normal fees to be able to go to the school. She was given a special concession of only paying double uh, because of her brilliance. Mm. Um, and at one stage during her school career, she was elected to the school's literary council as the head of the library services. Mm. She was then prevented from taking up her position following anti-Semitic objections. And she composed... And I see you say in your book... Sorry, I see you say in your book, in your book you actually said that she was a composer of several plays and poems in Hungarian as well as Hebrew. Yes, Hmm. yeah. So she was a... She was a brilliant, brilliant mm, girl academically, mm, mm. um, but a totally dedicated Zionist. Mm. She came from a very, a family that that was very assimilated, Uh, they they didn't have much Judaism, uh, but when she was subjected to this anti-Semitism, it drove her to join the, the youth Zionist organization, and she became an ardent Zionist, and as soon as she could, she made Aliyah. In 1939, she arrived in Palestine, which was in Mandate, Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, and she determined to become to, to study uh, agriculture, and she joined the kibbutz. But then she also joined the Haganah, which was the, the underground fighting movement of the, of the Jewish uh, organizations. Um, and how the Haganah encouraged its people to join the British Army because they would receive training to become proper soldiers. Oh, is uh, that they why? They would receive arms. Mm-hmm. So it became a, a, a byproduct. And then um, along came a fellow by the name of Winston Churchill uh, during the Second World War who started something called the Special Operations Executive. Um, it was established in 1940 with the purpose of coordinating acts of sabotage and subversion uh, behind enemy lines. So they would parachute, the idea was to, to parachute soldiers behind enemy lines. German enemy the lines. Haganah heard about, mm. the, the Haganah heard about this and they decided to try and get their people into this SAE to get Jews behind the lines to assist Jews who were under stress in Europe. Yes. And Hannah Sinesh was one of the ladies that volunteered for paratroop training to become a parachutist, and she was eventually parachuted in. Uh, I think she landed in, in Yugoslavia. I'm not 
subject to correction, but she then made her way across the border to Hungary to work with a, she first worked with a partisan group, and then she went to Hungary to try and help her family who were in trouble there and, and other Jews as well. Uh, and she was captured by Hungarian border guards, imprisoned. Uh, she was tortured horribly, apparently, mm-hmm. um, but never ever divorced anything other than her name. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, eventually they, they assassinated her. They, they called it an execution. Uh, and she was a hero driven by idealism, mm-hmm. driven from my personal experience of the scourges of anti Semitism. It's interesting that the Hungarian government a few years ago. Um, passed a law and the High Court of Hungary repealed the death sentence that had been imposed on her. Gosh. And she was declared a hero of Hungary. And I see in your book you say that her remains were exhumed in 1950 and returned to Israel for reburial on Mount Herzl. That's correct, yes. Mm. Israel's heroes are buried on Mount Herzl. Mm. But wonderful Um, that they actually brought her back like that. And she was brought back home. Mm. Mm. Mm, amazing. That was absolutely wonderful. And I mean, she's certainly got many, many streets named after her. Many, many streets are named after her. In fact, that's how, when, when I first arrived in Israel after making Aliyah, we lived with my son Adrian for for eight months or so. And he lived in Khanasane Street. Yes, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that got me asking people who I knew who Khanasane was. Then I asked my son, and, and I asked people around him. They knew, oh, she had something to do with the Haganah. She had something to do with the War of Independence. <laughs> Everybody had a, a little bit of an idea, but nobody really knew. And that's including born Israelis that we that I spoke to. They didn't know. Mm. Nobody really knew. And that's when I determined to write a book to tell people about these heroes. Well, I must admit, since reading your book, I spe- if I'm in Israel, I, I notice every single name now. <laughs> we're actually going to we're going to listen <laughs> well, to. At least it's achieved something. If I can just put in a little commercial, if you don't mind. Yes, do if so. If anybody's interested in either the street names in Israel or the uh, men of Vela, mm-hmm. uh, they can just go to my website. Uh, I have my own website, which is www.peterbaileybooks.com. And just tell us it's it ha- tell us how to spell Bailey. It's www.peterbaileybooks.com. The Peter Bailey Books is one word, and it's B-A-I-L-E-Y. B-A-I-L-E-Y. Great. And they can go yes, there yes. and order the books from there. I would highly recommend. They can order from, from the, 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 uh, the Men of Vela is available from Amazon, either in paperback mm-hmm. or uh, on, in, uh, is in an e-book. Um, and Street Lines of Visual, my contact details are there. They can contact me and I can arrange for them to, to get a book. Great. And thank you so much for sending me the Men of Vela. I really have enjoyed it. And I'm going on. I'm not even giving it out to my family to read at this stage. We're going to, we just, now, we're just going to go to a YouTube um, that I want you to listen to. It's Where Does Courage Come From? And it's by Simon Sinek. And then we'll discuss that okay. when we get back. Hang I'm on. Listening. The first four principles that you spoke about, it seems like it's really underpinned by courage, which is what you spoke a lot about. Yeah. And courage to a lot of people individually, within teams, and within yeah. business is a scary thing. Yeah. 
What would you say fosters courage? Is that an internal thing? Is it innate? Or is that yeah. something that you actually seek from, from the people around you? Yeah. So in my experience, courage is an external thing. Um, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet people who have risked their lives to save the lives of others. And they didn't have to. They, weren't, they would not have been faulted if they didn't. They were not ordered to. They may have violated orders, in fact, to do so. And I've had the chance to ask them, why did you do it? And almost unanimously they say, because they would have done it for me. And it's the sense that someone has my back that gives me the courage to do something for them. You know, if you're a world-famous tightrope walker and you wanted to try a brand-new death-defying act for the first time, you're going to do it with a net. It's not your ability that gave you the courage, even though you're really good at it. It's the net. It's this external thing that gave you the courage, uh, and you build it. Um, so, so I think that the, the to, li- to live a, 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 to live with a servant's heart, to be that that leader, that empathetic leader, what that engenders is that people start to believe that you have their backs, that you would do something for them, that you would sacrifice your interests to to protect them, and miraculously they'll do it back, um, and. The only thing that makes you a leader is you're the one who went first. You're the one who took the risk first. Right? That's the only thing that makes you the leader. Leader is not because you have the, the rank. We call you leader because you literally led, you led us. You went first towards the danger to take the risk. You set the tone. And people may have been cynical at the start and you did it again. And they may have been cynical again and you did it again and they realized, wait, this is for real. And weird human things happen and they start to offer you the same kind of love and trust back. I believe it's external. And I believe it's based on the quality of human relationships. Which means it doesn't happen overnight. Like, in the military, they do not build the trust in combat. It's not when they step off the plane with their rifles and arms do they all trust each other. It's in peacetime where they're training and training and training and training and learning to love each other. The Israelis, one of the most successful militaries in military history... The unit that you train with when you're 18 years old is your unit for the rest of your life. So when you're in your mid-40s and you get called back for reserve, it's the same people you trained with when you were 18 years old because they're so understand that the bonds that you form when you're a kid, that they want those bonds throughout your entire military career. They understand where the trust comes from. So... uh, I, I believe that, that, that we, we talk about human beings, we forget we're social animals. You know, there's an entire section in the bookshop called self-help. There is no section in the bookshop called help others. <laughs> and yet at the end of the day, by ourselves, we're crap. Like, we're just not that good by ourselves. We're not that strong, we're not that clever. But you give a team together, we can lift anything and solve any problem. Not a single person on earth solved any problem by themselves. It never happened. And even if it was their big brain, there was somebody who believed in them, who gave them a break, or funded them, whatever it was, they did not do it alone. And I think it's our ability to foster relationships that underpins the courage we need to do all those difficult things. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Major Peter Bailey in Israel, and we've been talking via Skype. And uh, so sometimes it might have been a bit difficult to hear us, but uh, I hope you heard that YouTube, Peter. Are you back there? 
Yes, I'm still with you. Uh, what did you think about that that uh, YouTube? The, the, the YouTube made me think of, of, of a comment that my, when, when I was a young officer in the South African Army, mm-hmm. in the Rifles Regiment, we had an officer commanding by the name of Commandant Ronnie Gibson. Uh, he was a hero. Uh, he had won the military medal uh, during the Second World War in the Western Desert. Uh, and he very proudly wore his military his military medal. He was uh, he, he took out from Russia for some uh, German tanks and whatever on his own endeavour. Um, and he always used to tell us, practice, practice, practice. It's like an orchestra. When you practice, the day you play in the big show, you know exactly what to do. Hmm. Hmm. And and I think that's what the, the the YouTube really tells me. When you practice. And the occasion to use what you've learned arrives, you mm-hmm. use it purely by rote and you do what has to be done. And that is what, what makes heroes at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And last week, um, Leon and I went to go and listen to Ramil Sherman from the Entebbe. He was out here from the Entebbe operation. Um, uh, he was in, in that in, um, in 1976. And um, he he was a secular Zionist, and he said that one of the things that uh, Yoni Netanyahu said before before they went in was it's a mission of every Jew to help one another. And he said he hadn't really thought about that because he was secular, and he and he thought you know Israel he'll save Israel, but he hadn't sort of thought in general about Jews. But here. Um, uh, what what I picked up from that message was very much that you have to trust. You've got to build up trust. You've got to know that you have your unit behind you. So whether it's a unit in the army or whether it's your family or friends, it's to know that you have there is that interconnectedness that we can rely on. Do you agree? As a chap in the, as a chap in YouTube, somebody's got your back. Absolutely. And that today, in today's world, I think is so true. You know that um, what's uh, J.K. Rawlings actually said, which I quite like. Just let me, I, I know I, I actually wrote it down. It says, it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. So I think if you look at today and the bullying that's going on on social media and in the schools and what have you today, it's that knowing that you've got another friend perhaps that will stand up for you that gives you the courage to go on and to face whatever you're facing. Can I agree with you? Mm-hmm. Um, um, Peter, just um, I wanted to know about uh, what's, what's your next project? What are you going to do next? My next I, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm busy on something at the moment which is more fiction than... Uh, it's fiction based on fact. I call it a, a historical fiction. Mm-hmm. If, if, if one imagines what would have happened in 1922 had the British government of the day kept the word and treated the Jewish homeland the same way they treated the Arab homeland and a Jewish homeland came into being under Jewish rule in 1922 or 1923. Uh, and I'm not this as a a sort of what if, what would have happened if? Okay, so you definitely are thinking about that as you go forward. It's a long-term Good. project. And yeah. then the other thing I've started now is uh, I'm doing a weekly blog, 
on, on my website. Mm-hmm. Um, where I, I delve into the history of the various towns in Israel, the various cities, the Moshavim, the Kibbutzim, uh, look at events in Israel. Um, nothing on a political front, but purely on a, on a historical and a, a human front. What is your website I'm all called? About people. Uh, yes, you are about pardon? people. What What is your website called? It's peterbailybooks.com. www.peterbailybooks.com. Books.com. I must write that down for myself, even. Um, you know, you, you actually said to me um, once that um, you, you believe that history is made up of two primary elements, events and people, and um, that, that the people shape and then participate in the events. And I thought that was, that was very true of, of, um, of life. It's uh, the events and the people and, and what actually transpires from there. Yeah, and I look at the people. People make the events happen. The events themselves become the history. Mm, mm. But it's the actual people that, that make the history. And my interest in history lies in the people that made that history. Absolutely. I have to agree with you that that is what really is incredibly fascinating. Um, right now in, um, in, in Israel today, um, you're facing a lot of um, hardships in many areas, but... I must admit that you are, I find the Israelis in particular to be incredibly resilient. Have you found that living in Israel? Very, very, very much so. Mm. Um, Irrespective of age, it's all the same. A lot of them say that the younger people are not what the older people used to be, but I think that there's there's an inborn resilience and an understanding of everybody what Israel's situation is, and, and, and that. Uh, that creates that resilience. Absolutely. Well, may you just go on with your good work, and I hope your book, uh, Men of Valor, does well. And remember, you can contact Chayab M if you want some details on that. It's been wonderful speaking to you. I've been told to wrap up, Peter. Um, we've been listening to each other for a while. We're going to be ending with a, a short YouTube by Dorp, Rabbi Dorp Greenberg on Do Not Fear. And it's just, we'll be ending with that. So thank you so much for being on my program, Peter. Is there anything you'd like to end my with? My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing you on your next visit to Israel. Absolutely. I can't wait to get there. Thanks, Peter. Good. Bye. Kol Ha'olam Kulo, the famous song puts it, the entire world is a narrow bridge. But what is the main thing in life? Do not fear. Move forward with optimism, with a positive viewpoint. After a class I gave on the Torah, a fellow came over to me and said, Rabbi, you seem to know the Torah well. What verse or what line does God repeat more often than any other? I thought about it, and I said, uh, perhaps the command about being sensitive and kind to the orphan and the widow. He said, I think that occurs ten times, or a dozen times in the Torah. And the fellows are not even close. The words that reoccur most often are, Al-Tira, God says, do not fear, do not be afraid. When I got home, I looked it up, and the fellow was absolutely right. Altira, fear not, occurs 80 times in the Torah. God tells it to every one of the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to every one of the prophets. 
and he tells them to tell the Jewish people 80 times, Al-Tira, do not be afraid. Now it's not that there's nothing to fear in life. There's a reason why there's a command 80 times in the Torah not to be afraid. And that is because there's much to be afraid of in life. There are many challenges. But what God is saying is you have the capacity and the power to overcome those challenges. Therefore, don't be afraid. God is reassuring us that we have the capacity to do so. It's interesting. Um, for years I thought pirates wore an eye patch over one of their eyes because they were missing an eye. Or maybe it was to protect at least one eye from flying shrapnel during some of their conflicts. But it turns out the, int- the reason is far more dramatic. And if you look into the Sefer Haman Hagim of pirates, if you, the explanation is, on the high seas the sun is very bright. And pirates have their battles on boats, on ships. So when you're on the deck of a ship, the sun is blindingly bright. But when you jump into the enemy ship, often the battle moves down into the bowels of the ship, and it's dark there. And it takes the human eye about four minutes to adjust to have night vision, so that the eye can see in darkness. Now, if you're battling for a ship, four minutes is a long time to wait if you want control of that ship. So the pirates would cover one eye, so the eye would adjust to murky darkness. They would have their battles. And when they would all move down into the depth of a ship, they would immediately rip off the eye patch, so their eye immediately adjusted, and they were able to see in the darkness. That is what Jews have done throughout history. In the heart of darkness, in the most difficult times, we have been able to see light, to find our path, Altira, not to be afraid, and to move forward in life with optimism and hope. Lo lefached klal, do not fear.